In the name of the one God, amen. I really don't like happy endings. I feel like they sort of mislead us into thinking about how things ought to turn out. I feel like they sort of give us a a little bit distorted picture of who God is and what God's role is in our life. Uh, Sometimes I think they ruin the best part of any story. And I have one example of this from you know, my many years of watching movies that I thought was the most egregious example of a happy ending ruining a really good story. And the movie came out about almost 30 years ago. It was called Mad Dog and Glory, and it starred Robert De Niro, cast against type as a very shy, reticent policeman who had never fired his gun in 25 years of service on the force, thus his ironic nickname, Mad Dog. Bill Murray plays this tough, hardened gangster on the other side. And the way this works is Mad Dog sort of accidentally saves the life of the gangster. In return, the gangster, as a reward, gives to Mad Dog a week with his Uh, a bartender at his club who's played by Uma Thurman at age 22 who got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress in this movie. And so uh, Mad Dog and Glory spend this week together and uh, I'm sure you can guess this part of the story, they kind of fall in love. And it's really the Robert De Niro character falling in love with her, she being a resourceful woman as uh, most women would be in a situation like that, is kind of not sure how this is going to go, so it's not like his love is completely reciprocated. So he's not exactly sure where he stands with her, but he's certain that he wants to maintain this relationship. Like, this is a blossoming of love in his middle life, and she's everything he ever wanted, and she has this freedom, and all this kind of thing that he enjoys and admires. So he goes to the gangster, to Bill Murray, and he says, um, I want to, uh, you know, I want this to last for more than a week, and uh, what do I need, you know, to keep this going? And he says, well, it'll cost you $40,000, and if you come up with $40,000, she's yours, all right? If that sounds like sex trafficking, that's pretty much exactly what it is. <laughs> if you give me forty grand, i will let my favorite bartender leave with you. So the week is then becomes about how does he get the money, there's these altercations with some of Bill Murray's henchmen, et cetera, et cetera, and, uh, and uh, uh, Robert De Niro sort of calls up all these resources of energy and he's taking control of his life and he's doing what's gotta be done to do this great heroic thing and there's this big conflagration at the end between uh, confrontation between Bill Murray and Robert De Niro and Murray's henchmen, and they uh, get into this fight, and finally, because uh, Robert De Niro is not able to raise the money, he comes up uh, $10,000 short. He's got 30 grand, but not 40. And what happens is, Bill Murray sees in Robert De Niro this kind of passion that he has and this energy, and sees what kind of a adversary he's up against. And he actually sees the, you know, the passion between him and Glory, the bartender, and so he sends, that he basically says to Bill Murray, okay, she's yours. So he doesn't even require any money. He's like, you two are on your own. Part of it's this continuing gratitude for him having saved Bill Murray's life. 
And part of it is he can just see what's going on here with this energy, this life force, this strength, this power that's coming through Robert De Niro, this sheepish guy that never fired a gun in his life as a, as a cop. So here's the end of the movie, last scene. Robert De Niro sitting on the steps of a, a stoop. And what's ha just happened is Bill Murray and his henchmen have left. He has a conversation with Glory in which she basically says, I don't think I'm ready for this life and I was just owned by this person and I don't want to be owned by you. And just not sure if it's right, but you can tell she's feeling something. So she walks away, she leaves the frame and all you get is Robert De Niro on a stoop at sunrise contemplating what happened and what's gonna happen next, thinking about everything that had gone on in this, this week, feeling this new kind of energy and power with himself, there's been a transformation that he's gone through and he's not really sure, was this, a, is this, a, was this good news, is it bad news? Uh, something happened though that changed his life, he knows that. And just watching Robert De Niro sitting there for 20 seconds, very, very satisfying to, to see him going through all that. And then the worst part is Glory walks back into the frame <laughs> and he takes his hand and she says, come on, let's go home. And they walk down the street arm in arm. And I was like, no, that's not the story. This desire to make sure everything is sort of wrapped up in a bow that we're sort of did that all even really happen? There's pain, there's suffering, there's struggle, and can we just move on to the happy ending? Uh, I was so satisfied with Robert De Niro just struggling in that moment. What happened? Who am I now? Where am I gonna go now? What resources did I find in myself that I didn't know I had before? Um, I loved it. And I feel the same this morning, uh, reading or hearing this, the rest of this story from Job. Uh, all of a sudden, after three weeks of hearing him rail against God and his friends about the injustice that God has perpetrated by making an innocent righteous man suffer, even though everybody knows that God is in the business of rewarding righteousness and punishing wickedness, and he's in there in the, sitting in the ashes and scraping his sores with a pot shirt, and they're saying, but there's, his friends are saying, but this is God's justice at work. This is how God meets out justice. He punishes the wicked, he rewards the righteous. And uh, Job is saying, no, this is not just. This is not justice, and I want a hearing with God in a courtroom or whatever, because I am gonna call him to account for what is happening to me, because this is not just. This is, can't be it. This can't be the end of the story. And uh, God grants his wish, and he gets a hearing. Boy, does he get a hearing. Whirlwind, and God's voice speaking out of the whirlwind, and he says basically to Job, well, who are you? Like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? When uh, the heavenly bodies sang together in joy and all these beautiful images, and he takes us on this whole tour of the entire cosmos and the stars and the waters and the animals, and he feeds them all and he makes them and he tends to them and he keeps coming back to this. And so what do you know? Like, what do you know about this? Sarcastically, surely you understand how I did this or why I did that. The one thing that is not in God's tour of the cosmos, human beings. That's his other point. There's so much more to the cosmos than this anthropocentric, God's here to serve me, 
in our limited understanding of God. We think we can control God by uh, asking God to show up in certain circumstances or to uh, think that we know about God, about how God rewards the righteous, punishes the wicked, or whatever. And um, it's pretty mind-blowing for Job. And he's, it seems like in the reading, he's pretty stunned at what he has seen. I thought about uh, Jodie Foster in the movie Contact, where she's sent out and, you know, sort of the whole cosmos is revealed to her. And her comment as a scientist and an engineer and an astronomer is, they should have sent a poet. That's sort of where, where Job is in this. It's like, oh my God, like his rational mind can't even conceive of what he's seen. But now he doesn't just know about God, he knows God. So now he's kind of the Robert De Niro character of, wow, okay, now what? I've been changed, I've been transformed, what's going to happen now? And what he does do is he falls back into repenting. He basically, the way it reads, he's guilty of hubris. He shouldn't have questioned God. It was too big for him. It was too much for him. Who is he as a little puny human to call God to account? And he repents, and he's in dust and ashes, and he says, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And then, again, this is the Uma Thurman moment, his fortunes are restored. Twice as good as they were before. Twice as good. He's better enough now than he was before. So this is, makes my head spin a little bit because aren't we now back into he, he repented of an evil that he had done by having a hubris to call God to account and now he's rewarded by having his fortunes restored? So that's kind of um, a little bit of a challenge for me and a, something the story invites us to wrestle with for sure. Um, so the question is, well, there has to be more to it than that. One is, what righteousness uh, had Job exhibited through this whole thing that warranted this return of his fortunes, if we're even back into that formula? And there's a couple of things when, uh, that, are, that God makes note of when he speaks to Job next. And he says, after Job repents and this whole thing, the next thing God speaks is not to Job, is to Job's friends. And he says, you have not spoken rightly of me the way that Job has spoken of me. So actually, it's Job that was righteous by calling God to account. Job was righteous in saying, this is not just and I demand hearing. Job was righteous in, in uh, wrestling with God and contending with God in the same way that Jacob was when he wrestled with the angel and God said, uh, I no longer call you Jacob, I call you Israel, because you have striven with God and with man. So Job is kind of another Jacob in that same way. So that's righteous. And then the other thing that God does is he's, he's, he rebukes Job's friends and says, you missed the point, Job got it. Um, and then he says to his friends, you, I need you to make a burnt offering. I want you to bring rams and bulls to Job, You'll offer them in sacrifice, and Job will pray for you to absolve you of your sin of speaking wrongly about me. In other words, of reducing me to the simple formula of rewarding righteousness and punishing wickedness. They offer their sacrifice, and Job prays for them and to absolve them. And Job, uh, God says, if you pray for them, then I will not treat them as they are uh, according to their wickedness by speaking wrong of me. That's where the verse comes in in the reading today. Job prayed for them 
and then he restored Job's uh, fortunes. That's what that means. Job is in the position of actually forgiving the people who tormented him by not understanding what he was saying or uh, having um, sympathy for him in his situation and trying to explain it away by their limited knowledge of who God is and what God does in our lives. So he, stro- he strove with God and with, with people and he offered a sacrifice for the people who had accompanied him and tried to comfort him but ended up tormenting him instead. Jewish people have a great tradition when people die. They sit Shiva for a while, six, six days, and their friends are there, and they never leave the pr- grieving person alone. And what they do that's really helpful is they don't say a word. They wait until the person speaks to them before they speak. They don't offer trite advice. Uh, they don't you know, pat them on the head with, this is what God means by this. They just sit with them in their grief and their loss uh, you know, trying to figure out what's next in their lives. So my question in this last little section when Job's fortunes are restored is, how is Job transformed? How does Job start over again? Think about that. He's been through one round of, uh, already of having a family and cattle and yada, 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 all been taken away from him. It's now coming back. How does he enter into relationship with this new family? How does he start over again knowing that they could all be taken away in a moment? And, um, d- and one example of that, it's a detail, but I think it's important. He names his three daughters, the most beautiful women in the world, and the English equivalent of their names are dove, cinnamon, and horn of eyeshadow, <laughs> which is like a little compact case with blue eyeshadow in it. Uh, dove, cinnamon, and horn of eyeshadow. But here's the thing. It says specifically in there, he gives them an equal share of his inheritance. Very counter to what the society and the culture would have expected. To me, that's a sign of his transformation in that moment, that he's now equally valuing all of the lives around him as individuals, and he's not being dictated to by the society at large about how they should be, how they should be treated. To me, what uh, I'm looking for here and what I feel is present in this story is more of a resurrection than a restoration. Job is resurrected with his, as they say, his bruises and his blessings. Job is resurrected with his scars, just the way Jesus was resurrected with his scars. They weren't just papered over. They weren't covered up. They weren't the worst movie plot device in history, which is, oh, it was a dream. It happened, and his life was changed as a result. So here we are at uh, St. Mary Magdalene, and we're in a similar kind of place. We haven't been tortured. Our world hasn't been taken away from us. In fact, quite the opposite. We actually land back here in this beautifully restored uh, church, this beautiful building that is so nurturing to to all of us. Um, But we are at a place where uh, we need to rebuild our church from the inside out. It's been rebuilt from the outside in, and now we need to rebuild it from the inside out. We're in a different place. We have different needs. There's different people. Uh, That's why we're doing a series of of, uh, workshops, um, forums, to sort of talk that through a little bit. I think we're all a little bit stunned, um, like, okay, here we are. Now what? Um, You know, there's some things that I expect to be happening that aren't. There's things that just run themselves because of St. Mary Magdalene and nobody waits for permission to do anything and 
We have book groups and we have a women's group and we have centering prayer. And these, none of these things require a clergy person or a staff person to do. <laughs> They're all things that the community has taken on to do. And that kind of initiative and that creative spirit is still there. So that's what we have to build on now. Uh, but in the meantime, this is a good opportunity to uh, sit with Robert De Niro on the step as the sun comes up and just think about what was all that and what new strength did I discover that I had and what did we discover as a community about ourselves and what is really important to us right now? What is it that we really need and that we really want? What's the most faithful thing that we could be doing right now? What's the most faithful way to respond to God's call, Jesus' call? Get up, come here in this place, in this time. This isn't our happy ending, but it's so much better than that. Amen. Oh,